to the Retail Smarts Podcast. I'm your host, Dominique Lamb. Welcome back to the Retail Smarts Podcast. I'm your host, Dominique Lamb. Today, we are incredibly lucky um, to have with us Tim James, who is a co-founder of Tagger, a mobile self-checkout platform for retail stores. It's an incredibly promising startup that has got huge amounts of traction with many of our fashion retailers, been covered by most major news outlets, including the Australian Financial Review, Inside Retail, Smart Company, ABC, Nine, the list keeps going on. And Tagger won the 2022 CanStar Innovation Award and is based in Brisbane. And today... We're here to talk to Tim about all things new and exciting retail because you guys are really, I guess, the inspiring minds that are taking retail into a new space. Tell me, how did you start your brand? Oh, you know, a bit of a long story, but um, I'd say that probably most of it kicked off around the the rise of coronavirus in 2020. I guess we were given an opportunity um, to grow and, and scale this business with the right timing. And look, I think I think timing is an important factor to uh, to scaling and running a startup. You know, we we kind of uh, we kind of birthed the idea in November 2019, and then um, you know, coronavirus gave us kick up the butt to solve this problem where. Uh, retailers are really suffering in the uh, in the environment in a, in a post pandemic world. So, look, us starting Tagger was really about merging the physical and the digital and bringing to um, the market a you know a, a more innovative solution to help retailers you know, stand out from the crowd. You know, combat hygienic practices and, and take everything more digital so they can get better data, more insights, and um, uh, adhere to the rising demands of customers wanting to uh, shop differently. Talk me through what that physically means. So if I'm a consumer that's never heard of you or a retailer that's never heard of you, explain to me what your product does. In essence, we're a mobile checkout and, you know, it's a super simple term, but essentially means is we, we enable uh, the functionality in store to, to put the checkout back in the customer's hands. And that means, you know, walking into a store, scanning barcodes, uh, paying on your phone with your selected payment method, which there are a variety of them and, you know, leaving. So, we're a little bit different. Like this is this is not new technology. This is this is something that's been done. You'll probably see this with retailers like Woolworths with their Scan and Go app. You've got Bunnings with their Trade app. Um, in the US, there's a there's a couple like Walmart and whatnot. But the problem is, is within the industry, most of the apps are privatized towards the independent business, which means as a consumer, you have to download five different applications to shop at five different places. And I guess you know among that and many other challenges, we saw the opportunity to create this mobile checkout that allowed any retailer to plug into it through their point of sale system um, and any customer to be able to get the same familiar experience from store to store without having to download an app. So it's important to note that, you know, our solution is a completely web-based solution, you know, no download, no login, no sign up. It really is about streamlined customer experience. And this is huge, as you said, like during the pandemic, you know, we were getting feedback from, you know, both consumers and government and, you know, retailers about the fact that, you know, people just didn't want to come into too much contact with somebody. And aside from that, for such a long period of time and much of what we spend so much time talking about on this show is this concept of frictionless, but you've in effect put that back into the consumer's hands where they can bring their own bag, they can scan their own product, they can pay with whatever form of payment they want. And then, you know, they can simply leave the store. I mean, that's that's an incredible 
you know, innovation, whether it's um, always been around, but the fact that it's so universal and something that everyone can plug into is really exciting. How has it been received, you know, within the retail space in Australia? Absolutely. Look, in the market, it's been received fantastically. We've gone through a period of, I guess, um, call it beta, where we were in kind of 10 months of um, of, of testing uh, and improving, you know, what technology's like, you know, you've got to go through multiple battles to win it. So, uh, but after then, we were quite comfortable with where it landed. Uh, and now we're in, I think, about half a dozen uh, stores across the Southeast Queensland network and rolling out that national, um, that national uh, rollout strategy as we kind of currently speak with retailers like Sabo Skirt, um, Pacific Fair in high volume areas, you know, sometimes it might account for 60% of or plus in-store transactions during a busy period, which means what we're doing is we're taking a, a humongous load off the staff to be able to perform when they're understaffed um, or under pressure. And, you know, what that means is that they can effectively service so many more customers, uh, build rapport, build relationship, you know, keep up that great level of customer service, but put the checkout back in the customer's hand, which means that instead of one staff, you know, dealing with one uh, customer and, you know, processing a transaction with the all the administration work involved, means that they can do so with three, four, five at once um, and still maintain that level of customer service. So in terms of like market adoption, market feedback, it varies from store to store, right? Like we've seen incredible success in the fashion industry. We've gone into, um, you know, uh, electronics and gadgets and, you know, we're kind of rolling out to more of um, the adventure stores at the moment. And it it varies. Sometimes it's a smaller percent, like 10% of total in-store transactions. Sometimes it gets up to larger, like 60%. I think it's important to note that like this is an innovation which I don't think will click and change everything overnight, right? There's a process to um to you know getting this into market and also being the favorite option among consumers. Um and keyword there being option, uh, and that is for how it will act for a period of time. For a consumer like me that doesn't have a hell of a lot of time though, this thing sounds so appealing, particularly in fashion, because you know, I, I hate trying things on. You know, yes, I might, you know, interact with staff very briefly, but if I can do everything myself and get in and out really quickly, it sounds absolutely ideal. How do you go about educating the consumer that it exists or that it is the preferred option for them? So we've got two routes of education, and that is firstly, as a retailer that comes on board with Tiger, we have pr- quite a comprehensive staff training module that we run uh, staff through to educate them on this sort of technology. And so there's one element of uh, it br- being driven by staff in which, you know, we've got multiple facets too, but then there's also an element of, um, you know, we've done extensive testing and um, and created signage that works for itself. So as a retailer, you, you position in-store signage, things like a welcome board coming in and then things like, you know, hangers situated throughout the uh, the store, which have your, your own unique QR code on it, which have simple messaging throughout things like shop straight from your phone or, um, you know, scan, pay, go, uh, and then also further education inside of the product. What I've really done from a product perspective, now my background is completely product, uh, user experience, customer experience and technology. And so I guess I've taken my whole career in, in learnings and put it towards building you know, the, the most intuitive and easy to use platform 
could possibly be. And so to fly through the, the technology is a couple of clicks and, um, you know, it's not like there's many options on where to go or what to do. It's, it's pretty streamlined in, in where to go and what to do next. So, um, you know, we find customers kind of go through two different routes. It's either they're uh, curious about the product where they see the signage and they use it totally on their own regard or a staff member kind of prompts them when they're in a busy period saying, hey, you know, I'll be with you in a moment. Alternatively, you can check out using Tagger um, and then they'll, they'll go ahead and do it. I've just come off an interview um, with 3AW today about retail crime. And of course, I think you must get asked this question all the time. Um, but of course, you know, in, in the retail space in Australia, we lose about $9 billion a year um, to retail theft. We know that only 5% of retailers are reporting. Do your retailers have concern that this app will kind of increase their shrink? You know, people will pretend that they're scanning and not really be checking out. How does all of that work? Absolutely. It's probably the biggest thing that we get asked. Um, so spot on and absent for retailers, you know, it should be, it should be your main concern with this. But I guess part of the reason why we created Tagger was to start to digitize interactions or behaviors. Now, currently let's look at how we deal with theft, right? And someone steals something, you either have to get your shoes on and jog them and chase them down the road, which is uh, not the ideal route, or you have to go through, you know, looking through CCTV, then also, you know, getting the cops on them and nine times out of 10, then nothing nothing really happens with that. So I guess in terms of the way that shrinkage is currently dealt with, it's not really an effective method of dealing with it. So what we look to do is digitize this sort of behavior um, so that we can start to prevent it before it even happened, you know, with the, the way that consumers are behaving in store and, and creating risk profiles. Currently, the way that we're dealing with theft is we've got kind of a two-way validation system. I, you know, call it of sorts. Haven't come up with an official name for it yet, but uh, essentially how it goes is after a customer has made a purchase, they're presented with a digital receipt. Now, a digital receipt has a QR code on it, which can only be scanned by a staff member that is either on the floor or on the door inside of the store. They have to have their own kind of unique login for that. And then that can be kind of validated that, that you know, you can see the, the date, the time, you know, who the customer was, products that they bought and um, the number of items and, and so forth. So we don't push it as a requirement. It's more of an optional step. However, what we found is 99% of retailers and 99% of transactions that go through do actually use it because it's kind of that that extra point of contact to go, okay, that transaction was all good. We can see all the details here. Um, and not only then, but you have all the customer details and um, that flows directly through to your point of sale system and, and so forth. Fantastic. So we've talked a lot about your business kind of outwardly. What's it like having a business partner in Jared? I know he's not here to defend himself, so if you say anything terrible, <laughs> he'll have to make it up with you later. Um, but what's it like having, you know, a co-founder? Look, it, it's it's amazing in, in the case, in my case, but look, a lot of cases, it doesn't really work um, very well. And, and I think it's important to pick and choose who you partner with. It's an extremely important aspect of um of the business and having unity in your decisions and making sure that you're, you know, thinking on the same wavelength and the operating on a similar wave wavelength is 
argumentatively like the most important thing in a startup. You know, you've got to um, you've got to communicate that strength and unity in the relationship of the the co-founders, and so therefore it's important to not just go, oh hey, you know, we've got a great idea and let's just do it. If you're total opposites of people um, that don't complement each other, but in Jared and I's uh, case, you know, we're incredibly ambitious people with the you know we've got the same vision for the product, we've got the you know the same goals in terms of the outcome and what we want to see, and um, his experience in business, while not might not be technology, is in you know the retail sector as well. So he brings uh, a wealth of knowledge in which uh, has filled a gap that I haven't uh, typically had before, and then vice versa on my side. How did you find each other? Well, we've we've been friends for for quite a while, actually. I'd say probably about four four years or so. Um, I I met him through my younger brother uh, through his through his um, coffee company and uh, clicked like that when we first met, and then it was just. Um, type of people to discuss ideas and, um, you know, discuss ventures and discuss, you know, just the big vision stuff. Uh, and we, you know, we kept doing so until it just made sense to what we were doing and what we were working on uh, aligned and we, we, we gave it a red hot crack. And what are, what is the big vision? Because, I mean, this sounds like it could go absolutely anywhere in the sense that you could plug in all sorts of things, you know, you could provide all sorts of data as a result of, you know, the data that you've collected, you know, certainly there's, um, you know, lots of really interesting stuff that could occur around cybercrime amongst other things. What is the big vision? So we're absolutely 100% an analytics company. Um, and, you know, if you look at e-commerce and the way that the e-commerce environment works, um, the data that the owners, the store owners are being shown helps them make such smarter decisions on what they're doing. But in person, we really don't have the same sort of access to that sort of data. And so our vision is to enable that sort of access. Right now, we're a mobile checkout, right? But in terms of where that goes to, we're more of a, you know, a unified retail system. What we don't like about retail is that the physical and the digital, and when I say that, e-commerce and in-store is totally segregated as business. More often than not, a lot of actually um, retailers will have separate entities to manage both of them and, you know, completely separated experiences between the two. And so our vision is to really merge these two and make it as easy as starting a Shopify store to start a retail uh, a, a retail uh, business, right? And, um, you know, where that leads to apart from, you know, starting out as mobile checkout is to a kind of 360 degree retail system where we use analytics as the core that powers the process. And what does a day in your life look like? I mean, because you're obviously creating lots of, you know, tools and, you know, you're promoting this product and you're engaging with retailers and you're understanding what consumers want. I mean, what does a day in your life look like at this point? Well, we've got a great team for first, firstly, where there's about seven of us currently um, comprised of, you know, sales, um, technology, um, you know, customer support, um, myself, Jared. I, I sit in a more of a product role where I kind of uh, am directing where the product goes and, and what we do next, listening to the customers, having the ears on the ground, you know, getting that feedback and, and constantly iterating. I'd say while we're early in market, a lot of my day is to um, – you know, understand what's happening um, minute to minute, day to day of the business, and then also make the necessary adjustments to the product based upon that. Trying not to specifically do something that everybody wants, but creating, I guess, this uh, this product vision 
um, and this product-led growth that is um, applicable to many rather than one-to-one. So it's kind of a process of elimination with that. And so a lot of my day has to do with organizing uh, and, and maintaining the uh, productivity of the, the technology or the product team, you know, directing the roadmap and then, um, you know, your general founder activities, which include generally building the brand day-to-day. I'd say that's probably the most overlooked part of starting a, a startup is that, you know, you can have a fantastic idea and you can have a fantastic team to build it. But if you haven't built the brand, then it's, it's a great oversight. So, um, you know, we're, we're trying to make retail very consumer focused where it's, you know, it's sexy and it's cool. And it's a really important part of what you what we're doing, right? We're not trying to build a brand in which is talking to a, a retailer. Uh, as such, we're, we're building a brand that's talking to the end user, which is the the shopper that's uh, got the the phone in their their hand. And it's so you know it's important to make that beautiful, to make the process sexy, you know, it, and uh, and build just a, a brand that shoppers want to engage in and want to get behind. So that's um, argumentatively the the most important part. One of the themes that's come out in in many of these interviews that we've been doing recently is the concept of. Is, is the goal to be the best or is the goal to win? What do you think? They already have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the day, it's about, you know, being the best and potentially winning at the same time because you are the best or, you know, is it yeah. about, you know, being the best in market? I think it's been, I think, you know, it's really important to have an awareness of what others are doing, but also stay in your own lane. It's really like what I found, especially in Australia, is it's really easy to look at what other people are doing and help have, have that influence what you're trying to do when, you know, most of the time they don't really know what they're doing either. Um, you know, prior prior to starting this startup, also did a lot of consulting as well and in which, you know, you deal with clients a lot that say, you know, I want this and I want that or, I, you know, I want this the same as this Nike app or whatnot. And there's not really any reasoning or justification behind it. It's just because someone else has it, I must have it. Mm. So I think it's really important to have, you know, a general awareness using your peripherals to understand what others are doing, but also keep on your path and, you know, Stay in your own lane because if you, you do that, then your growth is going to be accelerated tenfold. I think, um, you know, in our case, I don't know if I'm biased um, or Jared and I are biased, but I genuinely believe that we've got the best solution out there and that um, we can build the best product, you know, um, better than anyone else. And so, you know, stay true to that, stay in your own lane, keep going, and I think it's uh, you'll get there. I think that's really great advice. Now, at the end of each of these shows, I ask everybody the same question, and the question is, what are you reading or what are you watching? In terms of watching, I try and uh, separate the, the whole work life and the um, the, the entertainment life. But uh, currently, I, I mean, I got obsessed with that um, that uh, Lux listing and the, mm-hmm. the selling sunset. I think everyone has it at the moment. The whole reality of it is just absolutely hilarious. Oh, I'm a huge fan of Selling Sunset. In fact, it's hotly debated in our office because I'm a fan of Christine and nobody else is a fan of Christine. Um, Oh, no. I I don't think I can back you there. Yeah, well, she's leaving. This is it. This is the last season. I'm kind of devastated. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll have to stay with it, but... yeah, it's, it's well, look, I, I watched it, and um, well, I actually didn't end. It didn't begin watching it. My my partner started watching <laughs> it, 
And I remember watching about 10 minutes of it to start and, and saying, this is absolute bullshit. This is, this is trash. Like, how can you watch this? Yeah. And I think after 20 minutes, I was like, the next episode. Yeah, yep, let's, yep. let's do it. Come on, we'll see it. 100%. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been incredible talking to you about all of these wonderful innovations that we know are going to really change the face of our, our bricks and mortar and e-commerce stores. And, you know, I think this is the thing. You guys are actually making retailers fidgetal. We talk about this all the time with the physical and digital. And when I first started seven years ago, it was absolutely physical versus digital. And to hear you say some of that is still there um, really resonates with me. And I'm, I'm just so glad to you know hear about businesses like yours that are really changing that for the industry because we've got to keep moving forward. So thank you so much for your time. And um, we can't wait to catch up with you and see what else you have in store for Tagger. Thank you. I mean, I also have to steal that fidgetal. Fidgetal, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Don't go anywhere. Welcome to the Retail Research Roundup. Welcome to the Retail Research Roundup. I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Jason Pallant from Swinburne University. He's going to be giving us a deep dive on amazing retail research that has dropped from various sources around the country. Dr. Jason, what have you got for us this week? I am so excited to be here, Beck. Thank you for having me on the show and for this uh, segment. I think it's going to be interesting and, and valuable. So the idea of this segment is I'm going to pick a few new academic articles and some research try and summarize them in enough detail to sort of highlight how they might be helpful or interesting to practitioners without obviously giving away all the secret sauce from other people's research, but, you know, sort of give a bit of a showcase of all the research that is out there. So for this first one, I thought, look, I'm going to challenge myself. If I'm going to say that there's all this research that could be really practically relevant, uh, I'm going to pick an actual company and find some research that could be relevant to them. I thought, who better than the recent guests on the Retail Smarts podcast, Designer X with Kirsten Acosta. I was listening to that interview and I was like, okay, I can see some really interesting discussions here and some ways that I think some research could build on, you know, what they're doing and what they were talking about in that interview. How does that sound? That sounds great. The more information that our retailers can get, the better. I, I'm really excited about that. Like I am passionate about this idea of academic research helping empower practitioners. That's why I'm in this role here at Swinburne and CXI. So let's dive into it, all right? So I've picked three articles and I'm going to try and summarize them in a couple of minutes each, what they did, why it matters, and then how it could be useful, particularly for an a online fashion retail firm like DesignerX. So let's let's do it. The first one is... Uh, quite a big article. It's in the Journal of Retailing. The lead author was Gautam G. Vadakapat from George Mason University. And there's like six or seven authors on it, so I won't read them all out, but I'll tag them all when we share this. The article itself was called Sustainable Retail. Right, so if, if we're listening to this idea of the circular economy and, and renting fashion rather than it going to waste, you know that all fits under this umbrella of sustainable retail. So Just a few months ago, the leading academic journal in retail, the Journal of Retailing, did an article about sustainable retail. So it has to be relevant, right? They did uh, sort of what's called a meta-analysis or a 
as a review. So rather than collecting new data themselves, they essentially went, there's all these articles out there talking about things related to sustainability, sustainable retail, circular economy, but they're all over the place, right? Let's bring them all together and try and synthesize them. You know, can we come up with five key points that could be taken away? Why I really liked this one is their whole point, what they were looking at was the different roles that people have to play in sustainable retail. We talk about sustainable retail and we might think about, you know, retailers need to be more sustainable. Well, that's great, but to do that, they need suppliers, manufacturers to be sourcing, you know, more ethically, more sustainably. They also need consumers to want to buy sustainable products or shop in a sustainable way. So what this article has done is looked at the idea of across, you know, if we think about reduce, reuse, recycle, what are the roles that consumers have? What are the roles that suppliers have? What are the roles that retailers have for each of those different tasks? How does that go across the different marketing P's like product, package, price, place, promotion, et cetera? So just some examples, right, that I think I saw and was like, this is really interesting for uh, someone like Designer X. And one of their points was, you know, something consumers do is reduce their own ownership of new products by renting them. That's sort of what that whole business is set up to do. But their point then is, well, to do that, then brands and manufacturers or fashion designers need to actually design products in such a way that can be reused multiple times. So it needs to be something that is not so specific. It will only fit, you know, one type of person or it needs to be not something that's so seasonal it will only be worn once and only relevant for you know one event it's almost the opposite of the met gala right it's like don't design a met gala gown that's going to be worn once and then disappear we need to actually be thinking about designing products in a way that people will want to rent them and wear them multiple times and I thought that was a really interesting idea. So it's like the opposite of Shein, you know, which is fast fashion. It's produced very quickly. You buy a lot of it and it's usually for TikTok trends that are, you know, come and go within 15 minutes. Exactly. It, it's sort of saying if we want this idea of circular economy, and, and it was also talking about the quality of products, right? So to your point around fast fashion, it's, it's not just the design of them. It's actually the point of, well, make things with really high quality, sort of the best possible way that we can, because they're less likely to break down. And then they're actually going to be able to survive being rented, being worn multiple times. So I thought that was just an interesting first idea is is their thing was saying, we can't just say, you know, we've got to encourage consumers to reduce, reuse, recycle when we talk about fashion. We actually need suppliers to be making things that consumers will want to rent, reuse, reuse, recycle. And then we need the retailers or we need platforms like DesignerX in the middle to be facilitating and providing some way to do that. And, and the other thing this article really gets into interesting was about you know the mechanisms for actually how to do that. One of them they were talking about was aligning incentives. So it's talking about even at a system level, thinking about why would a supplier or a manufacturer of a fashion garment, what's their incentive to make something that would be rented? Like they're not getting anything necessarily from that subsequent rentals. So why do they care? What, what 
could we actually build into the system that would be an incentive for them to want their products to be rented again? I thought, again, that's a really interesting idea. I know there wasn't a clear answer to it, but I think that's something that as an industry, we could really be thinking about of how, like, what's the actual reason that, you know, each of these different parties should participate in a circular economy. I thought that was a really interesting point too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one that we're going to have to give some serious thought to because, you know, while your customers are making some money on the clothes and, you know, renting them out, you're probably also not getting the benefit of people buying the clothes as much. But for the sustainability angle, offering that sort of thing would be a great look for a brand. Absolutely. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting point because I think this is something that people talk about when we talk about like NFTs and that kind of thing where because they're with the blockchain and they have those smart contracts, in theory, the original producer of whatever that NFT is, the almost manufacturer, can actually embed a royalty in subsequent trades, right? So if I've bought the original NFT and I want to sell it to you, part of that sales proceeds could actually automatically goes back to you know, the supplier because it's easy to track where that thing is because of the blockchain. I don't know all the technicalities behind it, but you know, I was like, that's an interesting idea of thinking like, how do you do something like that with you know, fashion? Like, is there a way that the original manufacturer of a dress that is being rented again can benefit somehow? Maybe it's not with a you know, royalties fee like that, but there's some way, there's some incentive for those manufacturers to want their products to end up on a rental marketplace. Interesting idea to consider, right? So fascinating. Okay. So that's paper one. Paper two is around secondhand shoppers, right? We're going to get more specific now looking at the system from paper one, sustainable retail as a whole, diving into actually who are the consumers that are going to a marketplace like DesignerX. Now, this one is actually a paper that was led by Freya Evans. She's from the University of Tasmania. She was a PhD or honours student. And she worked with two people that that we know relatively well, one being Louise Grimmer, who was was a previous host and and co-host of Shopology, um, and Martin Grimmer, who also are both from from UTAS, both of whom I've, I've worked with before. So their article's in the Journal of Retailing and Consumer Services. So again, very relevant to all of your listeners. And what they did is look specifically at people who shop for secondhand products, right? So that could be through a rental service like DesignerX. It could be through going to an op shop or whatever it might be. You know, who are they? Why do they do it? You know, how do they differ, right? So they looked at how frequently people shop for secondhand products and then compared a bunch of things like, are they doing it because they're frugal? Like they're trying to save money. Are they doing it because they're, you know, environmentally conscious? Are they doing it because they actually really love the fashion and the style and it's a challenge to them to like put outfits together through secondhand kind of things? Some of their findings, like I think as, as we expect, people who did secondhand shopping a lot more were more frugal, were more environmentally conscious. But the really interesting thing I found from their work, which I know they've also written about publicly, is those consumers tend to be more style and fashion conscious as well. Right? I think this was a really interesting point where we think about, you know, a lot of times we talk about secondhand shoppers and we think, you know, they're people who are looking for a bargain, but actually in a lot of cases, they're people who are very fashion and style focused 
And that's sort of a badge of honour where they are able to walk around and say, I put this outfit together through rentals and op shopping and, and like it's actually the ultimate in style and fashion of not buying something off the rack from a designer, putting it together yourself. I thought that was a quite interesting point around who these people are and why somebody might be going to a marketplace like Designer X. Yeah, that is a massive trend we're seeing with consumers. Like we will see, you know, this younger demographic who are actually going op shopping. They will get items that, you know, are particularly on trend at the moment, but they'll tailor them, they'll, you know, make them bespoke and really fashionable items. It's a great new demographic. Absolutely. And I think so for, for a marketplace like Designer X, if you're a fashion rental sort of company or platform, what that tells me is that like you're not just targeting people who are already op shopping. It's not just to sort of trying to get people to do this behavior, but in a different channel. It's actually says to me, there's this opportunity to really target people who are heavy into fashion, heavy into sort of style and encourage them to do this as a way to sort of showcase how much they actually really know style and fashion. Uh, it's not just about the secondhandness. There's an opportunity here to target people who maybe actually aren't as interested in the whole sort of sustainability angle of it, but are really interested into the fashion angle. And by doing that, by getting them to sort of show how much they know about fashion, by getting them to rent something or buy something secondhand, we get the environmental benefits and sustainability benefits sort of almost as a bonus, but their reason for being there is the excitement of discovering something or finding some unique, really cool, fashionable item that other people aren't able to find because they don't do these kind of behaviours. So there's a potentially interesting way to extend the type of consumers who'd be interested in this space. I think it's terrific and it's definitely something that we need to invest some thought into. As millennials and Gen Z get, you know, more of a share of the buying power of the market as they grow older, we need to be able to appeal to them. Okay, Jason, we are running short on time. Let's make this one a lightning round. Lightning round, paper three, and I can do it really quickly because it's my own. It's one that I did with some colleagues here from CXI and Swinburne. It's all about data exchange, which you might think, that's sort of weird. We're talking about fashion rentals. Why are we talking about data? Something that Costa said in that interview was about how they need to collect a lot of personal information to make sure that those transactions are secure, right? They need your ID or they need to know where you live. They, you know, they need to know about you if you're going to rent somebody else's fashion. And I think Dominica asked a really interesting question of how do you navigate that without turning people off? And the response he gave was really interesting and actually quite on point, which was it's about showing consumers where the benefit is. Why are you doing that and how does it benefit them? It's not for the platform's benefit, right? It's not for targeting and selling ads. It's actually going to benefit you as a consumer. And that's exactly in line with what myself and my colleagues found in the paper that we had, which was around when and how consumers are willing to exchange data with retailers. And one of those big things is they can see the value in doing so. It's easily communicated to them that they as a person, as a consumer, will benefit, right? We use the example of Spotify and Netflix where by letting them track what you watch, you get better recommendations for it. And it's obvious to see that and they're quite good at it. So that's our message is sort of if you're going to collect all of that data, make it really clear to consumers how it benefits them, not you as a retailer or you as a marketplace, them 
as an individual. And the other thing that we found there that I think is quite relevant is giving consumers control over it. So let them say, all right, if you want to be able to rent this dress, right, you need to give us these. But you can then later delete your information this way or you can choose how we store it or what we do with it or who we share. You know, give them some insight into how it's being used and give them some options over how you use it. And those two things combined go a long way to actually getting consumers willing and accepting of sharing their data. How's that for a lightning round? I was so impressed. That was so quick. It's easy easy to talk about your own stuff, right? Although I could talk about it for hours. Yeah. I think we'll have to put that one down for a deep dive next episode that we do. You know that data security is something that our retailers really need to be thinking of, particularly as we start getting more omnichannel or digital, as Dominique just said earlier. Massive issue, right? Massive. But Jason, thank you so much for coming along today onto the Retail Smarts podcast and presenting your very first Retail Research Roundup. How do you feel? We did it. We did it. It's, it's, it's in the can, as they would say, in show business. Yeah, no, this was fun. This is really exciting. And thank you for this platform. I'd love to hear from listeners, subscribers, if there's a particular issue or topic, you know, I can go away, do some research on, find some stuff. You know, let's um, try and make this as practically relevant and interesting and useful as possible. I love that. All right. Well, Jason, we will see you on the next edition of the Retail Research Roundup. See you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Want to know more about the Australian retail industry? Visit nra.net.au for more insights just like these.